Okay, there we go. And that sounds more normal than usual. And today, special Father's Day lecture, of course, right? Special. You got to do these special lectures on these special days, and I always comply. Have you noticed every time? Every time there's one, boy, I spend the whole lecture dedicated to that particular motif. Ah, back on July the 10th. This is a summer schedule. We're hoping that we can get the whole house painted and the windows taken care of. And by the time we get back, and that's our big plan, so we're going to go for it in the next couple of weeks and see if we can get that done. June the 19th for today, though, 2022, lecture discussion number 176, I hope, on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1 through 3, and of course, Genesis 15, which is where we really are. Ah, Well, Ollie, another fine mess we are in, we find ourselves in. We do not have loose ends, in case you were wondering to disentangle or to tie up. Uh, oh, no, no. We have 630-foot gill net, uh, 50 of them, all raveled together in a big ball of interlaced mo- monofilament. That's what we've got here. And so, and, and, and again, such is the nature of Genesis 15. That's what Genesis 15 is. It's this big pile, a monstrous pile. I'm not being illegitimate or, or advertising uh, off the chart here. It's actually exactly what I described. So to be, and that is, again, the nature of Genesis 15, our specific task for today. But as you know, the entirety of Scripture is thus constructed like this, as is the creation. And obviously, whoever wrote the Bible, the author of Scripture, is the author of creation. And he intends this gillnet system, this gillnet process of untangling all of these interconnectivities for all of us who steadfastly, Read scripture. Seek him out. That's what he wants you to do. So what is the obvious question? The obvious question is why? We should embrace the challenge, but we should also ask why is he doing it? Why this big ball of monofilament fishing line here? The size of this house. Actually, ten times that. Hundreds of times. So why is that? I'd love to answer it today. It's easy to answer. I will answer it. You may not notice. Anyway, here we are. And because of the summer schedule, it's going to be prudent every time, I believe, to reconsider, to retrace our steps a bit for those who just might have joined in for the first time today. And so please, in unison, just in case that has happened, we should welcome the visitor. The one guy or the one woman here that, uh, and we should shout out what? What should we shout out when we get a visitor? That's correct. Run away. Run away. What are you thinking? (laughs) We should extend great sympathy. We should groan with sorrow for them. Uh, Sackcloth and ashes. All of the, uh, all of that is appropriate. Uh, What's that? We can rejoice. We can, but. But it is an odd thing, I have to admit. Chasing away the visitor every Sunday was the motto of Cliffside for many, many years. Okay, be that as it may, I should begin today with, uh, in my opinion, the essential information of Genesis 15. Recapping it, if you will. Okay, bludgeoning, I guess, is what I'm doing. Hitting the hammer, or hitting the nail again with the same hammer. Or to symphonize what we have assembled to this date. Uh, we may refer to the aggregate as resolving this. This is kind of my title for today. Dave will always 
He will always change it into something a lot better. But it's the why of belief. We know it's a belief process. But why is that the process? Begin to think why that is the only process. Why, the why of belief, to put it in another form, is the foundational principle of salvation, of eternal life, as God defines life, as God defines living. Genesis 15 begins the answering of this question. That's what makes it so powerful and so incredible. Why is our destiny, our destination, if you want to think it that way, determined by belief, our belief? Why is that? And not, for example, our works. Works, I'll give you the answer really fast to that. Works confronts something. Works is on a collision course with something. And it can't resolve it. And of course, that is infinity, the price of blood, as I've gone over many, many times. How much does it cost, how much does it cost to buy one drop of Christ's blood? Works confronts infinity. And Genesis 15 unequivocally establishes that belief, believing God, Genesis 15:6, the first mention in Scripture, as you know, of believing, the first time belief is even mentioned in Scripture is Genesis 15:6, and, and that is this salvation principle of belief. And that is Genesis 15. It is the means, the singular mechanism. There is no other mechanism but this mechanism by which we, the lost, the dying, the sinners, will be saved. It's all we've got. Why is it the only? So again, the why of belief. Not only why did he make belief the system, but why is it the only system? All of those things are incorporated in today's title. That won't be the title for very much longer, obviously. Anyway, Jesus Christ Melchizedek, same thing. I am saying the same thing twice. It's a redundancy. When I say Jesus Christ, I say Melchizedek. It is the same person with different uh, titles, if you wish. Christ has many names. One of them is Melchizedek. And that's Genesis 14, 18 through, uh, uh, through Genesis 15 uh, through 19. So Jesus Christ Melchizedek. Uh, and I should add the rest of these, these verses. When you want to find out if Jesus Christ is Melchizedek, let me divert here a second. Uh, obviously, I'm saying that he is always, he's present from Genesis 14, 18 through 24, but he's also in, present in, in uh, Genesis 15, 15, 1 through 15, 19. So that is the same person being addressed there all, the, all through all of those passages. And Hebrews 7, 3, 7, 6, Revelation 1, 8, 1, Revelation 21, 6, all verify that that is the case in my opinion, uh, my opinion, because that's where the Aleph Tav is introduced. That is, infinity is introduced there in those verses, those four. And both Christ and Melchizedek have infinity assigned to them. The concept of infinity, therefore, is, is attached to what? Belief. So that's how we begin to solve the problem of why belief? Because of infinity. Jesus Christ, the infinite one, assigns infinity to belief, which is the salvific doctrinal truth of belief. He assigns it. He makes sure that we know that his infinity and belief are attached together, which causes the most obvious of all the obvious questions. Had Abraham ever in his lifetime considered infinity? Have, has any very few Christians consider infinity, which is a big mistake. The Aleph Tav, let me put the Aleph Tav up here again. 
and I don't pronounce it beautifully. I know I don't, and people. But that is infinity. And you get that, that concept in your mind and you will begin to unravel Genesis 15. So had Abraham even considered the, the, the concept of infinity when it was introduced to him in Genesis 15? Genesis 15.5, as you can, if you've read it, you will recognize it. It infers non-computability with the rhetorical statement from the, from Christ Melchizedek. Because what he says to Abraham, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And that's a rhetorical question because what is he trying to say? A rhetorical statement. He's saying to Abraham, you do not have the ability to count the numbers of the stars. Even the ones you have seen, you can't count them. And then, of course, there are many trillions that we cannot see, right? And there's no possibility a human being could compute the number of stars. So there's this non-computability that is introduced in Genesis 15.5. And that, of course, again, is infinity. Whenever we discuss non-computability, then we are discussing infinity. And it's clear as it could ever be. And the implication, again, is, is certain. Abraham could never count the stars. Only someone who is infinite could count the stars. The Aleph, the Aleph Tav alone can count the stars in the finite universe. And notice what I just said there. I said the universe is finite. Now, that's going to light some people up who are listening. They think, no, the universe is infinite. It's not. That is atheism that believes that. <coughs> Excuse me. Ah. <sighs> And again, the Aleph Tav is infinite. Only the Aleph Tav is infinite. And that truth is absolutely critical to the church. And today the church teaches otherwise, which is a shame. And this is why Gödel's incompleteness theorems are so devastating to evolutionary atheism. He has said essentially for truth, for mathematical truth to be proved Infinity is required, is necessary. Infinity comes from infinity. You've heard me say that many times. You've heard me say life comes from life. Consciousness comes from life. Consciousness, right? Timelessness comes, or time comes from timelessness. You have to be timeless in order to, for, for you to install time. Mathematics is, comes from infinity. That's why Goodell's mathematical systems in completeness have such value. The infinite consciousness created mathematics. It's obvious. If mathematics are infinite, then infinity comes from infinity, right? And so, if mathematics has an infinite uh, uh, characteristic, then it has to come from an infinite mind. And, and again, Christ alone, the Godhead alone, the Elohim, the three that are one, they alone, I shouldn't say they, they are one, but I'll say they because I, I get to, they alone can prove truth because you have to have infinity to prove truth, mathematical truth, and I'll go to the point of saying any truth. Here's something that you need to know, I believe. Satan is what? What kind of being is Satan? What kind of restrictive characteristic does he have? The same as us. He's what? He's created. That makes him what? Finite. Satan is finite. And therefore, Satan cannot prove truth. Can't do it. 
Satan cannot know. Satan cannot account for all the probabilities and all the possibilities. He can't do it. It requires an infinite mind. He cannot know. Knowing something is true, proving something is true, only comes from omniscient infinity. And that is why this Aleph Tav is so important to the church. Only one person that we are aware of, that is the Godhead, and of that Godhead, the Christ is the manifestation of the invisible. He is the only one who has ever declared that he is an infinite being. The only one. And that he knows the truth. And he can prove the truth. And he knows all things. No other human being of any kind. Now, his humanity is perfect humanity. But uh, he, no one has ever said that but him. Okay, so. Where was I? Melchizedek. What did Melchizedek do? Genesis 14:18. He did something amazing. He brought bread and wine. Why did he bring bread and wine? Did Melchizedek know that what we would be discussing with Abraham in Genesis 15 would be a, a belief-based salvific position? But did he know that? Well, if he did know that, then it would be absolutely appropriate for him to bring bread and wine. It's the first mention of bread and wine in the scripture, as I said previously. And Melchizedek is identified as the Aleph Tav, along with Christ, Psalm 110.4, Hebrews 5.6, So we have someone identified as the Aleph Tav who brings bread and wine. And he is called the infinite forever one. Psalm 110.4 is referring to, is a referencing of the Messiah King. And if you want to look it up, the true Godhead, I'm sorry, excuse me, the triune Godhead says that the Messiah will be king. So the, the triune Godhead says it, it will be the Messiah King. And he describes the Messiah King as forever. And what term does he call him? He says the, the, the Messiah King is a forever king. That is an infinite, eternal king. What descriptive term, adjective does he use? He calls him a Melchizedekian priest. Why would God call the Messiah King a Melchizedekian priest? I have king and priest. It doesn't really make sense biblically until you understand that it makes perfect sense. But Melchizedek is obviously an eternal Aleph Tav. And the Messiah is the Aleph Tav as well. Both of them, king and priest, both of those titles are assigned. And everyone knows only Jesus Christ can simultaneously be the high priest of God, the most high priest of God and the Messiah King of Israel. He is the only one that can do that. But Melchizedek is described as that in Genesis 14:18 through 24. Now Melchizedek brings bread and wine, and that's the order. Jesus Christ also brings bread and wine, Matthew 26, 26 through 29. And that is where he identifies the bread is what? He says to his apostles, this is, take this, this bread, this is my what? Body. Drink this wine, this is what? My blood. He, he identifies the bread as his body and the wine as his blood. And it's the blood of the new covenant. So you need to know what the old covenant is. 
blood, and he takes the blood, and he takes the bread, and, the, and keep in mind, uh, the bread is broken, and it's really divided. It says divided. So he divides the bread, and he, pa- he says, to, and passes it among them, and, and then they take the, the blood. And of course, the division of the bread is exactly what happens in Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. You know it did. Did Christ remember because he is Melchizedek? He is the Aleph Tav. Did he remember? Did he know? Oh, duh. Of course he did. When he instituted the bread and the wine at Matthew 26, 26 through 29, that he was returning to Genesis 14, 18 through 22, and to Genesis 15, of course, duh, duh. Endless duh. Infinite duh. Sometimes I worry about my repetition, but it's part of my teaching style. In this case, it's my constancy with respect to Melchizedek being Christ himself pre-incarnate. I'm just got to make sure that's there. It's something something that I'm focusing on. And to me, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. It's irrefutable. Melchizedek, again, is the Aleph Tav, the Infinite One. And Jesus is the Aleph Tav. The infinite one, Revelation 1, 8 and 1, 11, even says, that's me, that's what I am. Thus, the obvious question again, how many Aleph Tavs can there be? Deuteronomy 6, 4, we'll give you a hint. So, uh, Genesis 1, 26, Genesis 3, 22, it's the greatest mystery is the triune nature of the Godhead. The greatest mystery of is, is the Godhead, is Christ of the Godhead becoming Adding humanity, 1 Timothy 3.16. Can there be multiple infinity ones? Separate infinities. Can we have separate infinities? Separate Aleph Tavs? How many Aleph Tavs are there? How many infinite ones are there? Let's take and do the math. I have infinity times 2 equals what? What do I get? I still get infinity. How many infinities is there? There's one. There's one infinity, and that is the triune Godhead. Go ahead, fire. Well, of course they do. We did that last week. Okay. But again, this undivided element is so important. And the dividing element is also important. Obviously, Jesus at Matthew 26, 26 and Mark 14, 22, Luke 22, 17 through 23, knew what happened, knew what he did at Genesis 14, 18 through 24, and what he continued to do as, as, an, as, it, as it progressed at Genesis 15. And I should mention that at Luke 22:17, where Christ says to his apostles, take this and divide. The Greek word is clearly divide, and it only happens one time in all of the New Testament, and that's the place. Take this and divide it among yourselves. Note also in Genesis 14:18 through 24 in that ceremony, because the two ceremonies, I want to know things about the two ceremonies, obviously. Uh, can I combine the two ceremonies into one ceremony? And take all of the pieces that I can get in Genesis 14, 18 through 24, and all the pieces I can get in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, and Luke 17, uh, 22, 17 through 23, Mark 14, 22, and John also 13 comes into play here. Can I take all those pieces and put them together? Add them up. Oh, I can. I will. Note also. 
the king of Sodom is present at the Genesis 14, 18 through 24 ceremony, arguing and trying to get possession of the people from Abraham. After the king of Sodom, as I've said before, is dead. So this is the second king of Sodom, not the first king of Sodom. So I have this king of Sodom arguing with Melchizedek and, and, and Abraham, <clears throat> as you know. And also, I'm going to make the case that the king of Sodom is in attendance. If he's in the attendance at Genesis 14, he's going to be at John 13 and Luke 22 and Matthew 26. He's going to be there. John 13.30 recounts that Judas Satan left the Passover bread and wine ceremony that Christ was doing. If you take all of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put all of those verses together, you will see that Judas and Satan are there. And after receiving the bread uh, from Christ, the Lord God Almighty, Judas immediately leaves. Now remember, Judas gets the sop. He has Satan inside of him. That's the peace of honor. Christ gave the bread of honor to Judas. He is the guest of honor at that ceremony. And the parallels are undeniable. They're glaringly visible. I know glaringly visible is a redundancy, but it's nonetheless appropriate. Jesus Christ, the omniscient, infinite God of creation. Of course, you know the Colossians 1, 15 through 18, John 1 through 4. Reenacts Genesis 14, 18 through 24 with his apostles. I'm proposing that what Christ did with Abraham in Genesis 14, 18 through 24 is exactly perfectly replicated at Matthew 26, 26 during the Passover meal. Mark 14, 22, Luke 22, 17 through 23. And the important one in my view is John 13, 26 through 30 because once again, Satan is there. He's at both of them. I think it solidifies the position that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ for those who are still disagreeing with me. Okay, where are we now? Did I notice, uh, did I say yet, I hope I did, that I got bread and wine? And did we do the math? Bread and wine, one and one is what? Two, I have a two. So when I got a two, I pay attention to all the twos. Melchizedek, that's a two that no one ever notices in, in Genesis 15 because it's at the end of Genesis 14 and they dissect them too and that is a great error. The shed blood in Genesis 15 is a critical component of Genesis 15. There's blood everywhere, isn't there? And likewise, the blood shed in the new covenant is the critical component. Both events have commonality with the body divided. The blood is, a, is the warranty of, of these ceremonies, of the unconditional covenant, along with the inference, uh, this attempt by Satan being in both places. So what I'm trying to say, I hope I can say it more clearly, I have blood and body and I have wine and bread. I have Satan in both places. I have the blood of, of the, both ceremonies in, in the New Testament and the Old Testament with regard to the bread and wine. Both ceremonies have blood everywhere, and the blood is the central component of it. 
So all of that to say the two birds, therefore, because that's another two I've got to deal with, right? I got two birds, I got bread and wine, and they have to associate with the bread and wine. Both of them are two. So how in the world do I have the birds be involved with the bread and the wine? So we've got to deal with that yet. So, through the infinity of Christ, the Aleph Tav, the hypostatus forever, the knowing of all things, the proving of truth, all of that and more wrapped included, all of that is primarily the focus of the undivided two birds. But somehow the bread and wine are also involved. And again, the undivided aspect, in my opinion, obviously is the linchpin to this. Let me repeat it in this way. Melchizedek Christ presided over all of Genesis 15, just as he presided over Genesis 14, 18 through 24. And the two are not separable. You've got to continue from 14, 18 through 24 through 15, 19. You've got to do it, in my view. And everything that Abraham did in Genesis 15 was Abraham's complete idea. He did it all on his own. No. That would be idiocy. Everything that Abraham did was at the behest of the Lord God Almighty in the flesh himself. So we should therefore realize that there is absolutely no arbitrary marginal components here. Everything has been commanded. Everything has been orchestrated. Everything has been designed carefully and perfectly before the foundations of the earth, which includes time, Revelation 13.8. And the Lord God Almighty himself is doing it. Genesis 15 and its essence is portraying the lamb slain and the God-man. both of which are the only means by which mankind can be saved. The truth, uh, this is the truth of salvation. This is the salvific principle. Do you believe it? John eleven twenty five. So, how precise is the mind of the infinite God? How good is he at doing something like this? How perfect is his design? What details in all of Genesis 14, 18 through 24 and Genesis 15, 1 through 19, what detail is negligible? Which one do you think is meaningless? Which of the Genesis 15 instructions given by God, which of the Genesis 15 statements spoken by God, which of the acts of Abraham that Abraham obediently complied with were not thoughtfully considered by the Elohim? Which one? Note that the HTRP, that would be me, the highly trained religious professional, I am asking an intentionally stupid question. Also, heretical question. I should interject that the God-man is the only solution to sin. How do I know that? Because the God-man is infinite. And it's not possible that an infinite mind could conceive of an opportunity of multiple possibilities as a solution to sin and salvation. He is saying because his infinity means that he alone knows the truth and can prove the truth that this is the only possible process. Because omniscience would do what? It would eliminate every other, every other possibility and probability, right? It would eliminate it down to one. It would, it would select the only one. 
And, and again, that testifies of indivisibility and undividedness. Infinity testifies of indivisibility and undividedness. And so, I, I, to, to kind of repeat it, there's only one possibility, and we, we now know what it is because of Genesis 15. We know, and of course, the entire New Testament. We now can conclude that it is the proven truth. It's been proven that this is the one way. This is the one gate. No, no one comes to the Father except by this means. And that's because all other possibilities have been considered. And in order to prove something, all possibilities must be considered. And that is how the truth mathematically and in this case theologically comes to be. That, necess- ne- necess- yeah, yeah, yeah. that necessitates that the God-man, the, the truth of the God-man and the truth of the blood of Christ and the truth of the divided body of Christ, the broken body, Uh, it, it necessitates that that truth must originate from an infinite mind. And that, again, repeats Goodell's incompleteness and what I call Chronister's Law of Infinity. Goodell figured this out. He did not know the theological and the philosophical ramifications of what he said until later. And then he wrote a thesis on it. It's extraordinary. The only way you can know something is true is you must be infinite. Otherwise, you can just presume something is true based on a sample size that is, that is finite. So again, which jot or tittle, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 14, 18 through 24, which jot or tittle do you suppose was overlooked, was an afterthought, was carelessly inserted by the infinite mind of the one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Which, which thing do you think is meaningless there? All of these components in its precise order, perfect order, which one is out of order, which one is just thrown in? <coughs> Notice when Christ says this of himself in John fourteen sixteen, he adds again that no one can be saved except through me. That's what he says. He knows this to be true. How does he know that's true? Because he's infinite and he can prove it. Can anybody else prove it? Can anybody else really know what he knows? It can't be done. Confirming Jesus Christ as the infinite mind that can sees, that accounted for all possibilities, any and all probabilities, and is the only, the one truth, the singular answer to the Genesis 15.8 question. That's what's going on. What's the Genesis 15.8? How can I know? How can I know that I'm saved? One person can prove it to you. And one person only. One person can know. And one person only. And that's your Acts 4.12 and your 1 Timothy 2.5. There's only one salvation system. One. None other. That will make people furious. All over the world they will be furious. What's that? It is true. Again, Melchizedek. Let me look at my time. I've got to hurry. Again, Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, inculcates infinity at Genesis 15. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, assigns infinity to Melchizedek. So that means Melchizedek brings it 
to Genesis 15 and 14. Something that the Apostle Paul, he devotes five chapters 5, 6, and 7 of his Hebrew letters to this. He wants to make sure that you understand that when you see Melchizedek, he's bringing his infinite capability, not his, not his infinite capability, he's bringing his infinity to Genesis 14, 18 through 24, as well as bread and wine. And that's what Paul is doing in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. King David, Psalm <clears throat> excuse me, 110.4 through 112.10 attaches infinity to Melchizedek and to Christ nine times. Just saying. I'm now going to ask a general question to the unnamed, anonymous, hypothetical, theological academics out there. I'm addressing them. Is it really your position that the Lord God of creation in response to the belief of Abraham and the Genesis 15:8 question of Abraham, how can I know I am saved? Is it your belief? And those are two of the most incredible monumental events in all of Scripture. Is it your hill to die on that God, God sent some guy? Just, I want to pick a guy. You, get some bread and wine. Go talk to Abraham. Is that your position? Because that is their position. It is, it is always their position. He just happened to bring bread and wine, they'll say, for the first time in all of Scripture. You think that's a coincidence? There cannot be any coincidences in Scripture. Cannot be. It's, they are destroyed by omniscience. So you thought some guy off the street, got off the bus, got some bread and wine, didn't know what he was doing, walked over to... Uh, Abraham and presided over Genesis 14:18 through 15:21. Does that make any sense at all? That's a rhetorical question. It implies no. It doesn't make any sense at all. Allow me to rephrase it just in case there's someone somewhere answering yes to what I just asked. Jesus Christ himself came to Abraham when he announced announced to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah he said, Behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Genesis 17, 15 through 19. He also said it in Genesis 18, 10. So there's Christ. We know that's Christ at Genesis 17, 15 and 19. We know it's Christ at Genesis 18, 10. He comes to Abraham and he announces to Abraham and, and Sarah, Behold, your wife, your, Sarah, your wife will have a son. And it's undeniably a reference to Genesis 15, 2 through 5, where he says what? Count the stars, baby. He's undeniably telling Abraham, Genesis 17, 15 through 19 and 18, 10, Sarah's going to have a son. You all know the story. But Genesis 15, 2 through 5, you can't count the stars. That, that leads to Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed Christ with respect to Genesis 15, 2 through 5. One who will come from your own body will be your heir. Your descendants shall be like the uncountable stars. That's what Christ says to him. So, is the bringing of the body and blood of Christ by the king of Jerusalem and the high priest of the most high God, Genesis 14:18, to whom Abraham worshipped with tithes, he worshipped Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, 6, all of the tribe of the Levi worshipped Melchizedek through the loins of Abraham, it says in Hebrews. That's Paul's point. Does that event have equality with Genesis eighteen ten? 
Christ coming to Abraham and Sarah saying, you're going to have an heir. That's a, 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 that's a fundamental positioning in Scripture. Is it, does it have the same equality to Abraham worshiping Melchizedek and Melchizedek answering his questions with regard to his own salvation? If your answer is yes and your answer should be yes, then Christ is Melchizedek. Does that make sense? We know Christ came to Abraham and Sarah. Did Christ come to Abraham in Genesis 14, 18 through 24? If you say he didn't, then you're saying that what happened in Genesis 18, uh, 14, 18 through 24 is insignificant. Just throw it away. And you can't. Christ is Melchizedek. Now allow me to continue. Actually, I don't need... I don't require permission. I'm going to continue anyway, aren't I? Yeah, you know. Genesis 8, 16 through 32. And, and you might remember, this is the discussion between Jesus Christ, who's the angel of the Lord, Exodus 3, 2. He's the I am that I am, Exodus 3, 14. John 11, 25. John 8, 24. John 14, 6. He's the I am that I am. He comes to Abraham and they have a discussion. Christ himself comes to Abraham. He came to Abraham with Sarah. On, he came, now he comes to Abraham with regard to the destruction of the great wickedness of Sodom. Genesis 18.20, Genesis 13.30. Christ comes to Abraham for that. So what am I asking? How many times did Christ come to Abraham? In Genesis 14.18-24 and 15.1-21, is that Christ also? And the answer is obvious to me. I probably need to add in Hagar, the angel of the Lord, Genesis 16, 7, 16, 13, is the God who sees all things, Hebrews 4, 13, Revelation 2, 23, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Christ is identified by Hagar as the God who sees all things. Now, she figured that out. Christ came to Hagar to talk to her about Ishmael. Did he come to Abraham in Genesis 14, 18 through 24 or not? And all things, he sees all things. That's the non-physical things because your thoughts are things. And he sees all thoughts. Again, that's why I bring up Revelation 2, 23. He sees both realms, all things in both realms, the physical realm and the spiritual realm. He knows all the thoughts, John 16, 19. The point is, is Jesus Christ is the God who sees and Hagar says to him, you are the God who sees. That's what she says to him. She's saying that to Christ and only Christ can be said. That we, only he is the one. He's the physical. He's the visible made. Uh, I'm sorry. He's the invisible God made visible. I got it. Trying to go too fast. The point is, yea, a point. He comes to Hagar to tell her that her descendants will be multiplied exceedingly, not countable for the multitude that they will be. Genesis 16.9. That is almost identical to what he says to Abraham, if it is him saying it to Abraham. And obviously it is him saying it to Abraham. So if you concede to the information that Christ personally comes to all of these, and of course... Uh, Genesis 22, oops. Uh, Genesis, uh, let me add Genesis 22, 11, 22, 15, where once more Christ brings Genesis 15 to the forefront. 
That is the sacrifice of Isaac. So put them all together. The sacrifice of Isaac, where the Jehovah Jireh Salam is, that's Jerusalem. Melchizedek, who's the high priest and the king of Israel. And again, Jerusalem is there. I have the ram of Genesis 15, 9, 22, 13, in 22, 13. I have the repeating of Genesis 15, 5, of Genesis 22, 17. And plus, I got the biggest one of all. I've got Genesis 3.15. That's part of Genesis 22. Because that's the seed of the woman. At 22.18 in Galatians 3.8-9 and Galatians 3.16-3.19. The seed of the woman. The singular. The only one. There's only one seed of the woman. Why is there only one seed of the woman? She has other children, but there's only one seed. How come there's only one seed? Because there's always only one. And that's why he calls himself the seed of the woman. If God is doing that, if he's doing 22 Genesis, if he's doing 18 Genesis, if he's doing 17 Genesis, and doing 16 Genesis, is he doing 15 Genesis? Did he do 14 Genesis? 18 through 21? 24, sorry. Is Christ doing all of that? And if he is, is it still your position that Melchizedek bringing the body and blood of Jesus Christ is some guy that got off the bus? He's a stand-in. He's not the angel of the Lord himself. Does that make sense at all to anybody? Obviously, Christ himself is doing that. He is meeting with Satan and Abraham. It's obviously Christ. It seems well beyond, beyond obviously, that there is no interval between 14.24 and Genesis 15.1. That's the same person in all of that. And obviously it is. Genesis 15 is the foundation of Genesis 18, Genesis 16, and Genesis 22. How can it be that the event that establishes the principle of salvation through belief, the why of belief, it's, it's answering the question, the why of belief, how can it be that, that that's, those scriptures, and again, the principle of salvation through believing God, John 11, 25, Genesis 15, 6, Galatians 3, 9, is this the event that Christ would send somebody else? A type of himself, which is the position. They say Melchizedek's just a type. He's just a type. If he's just a type, what is he? He's just a man. Would Christ... This is the belief system. This is the singular principle of salvation through belief. Would he send some guy? Is that your position? He would send a type of himself. Remember, Genesis 15 is set upon Genesis 14, 18 to 24. Why do I keep saying that? Because that's where Melchizedek brings the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the bread and the wine is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Melchizedek brings it. Who else brings the body and the blood of Jesus Christ? There's only one other person that has ever bought brought the body and the blood that is Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He did it. How important is the body and the blood of Christ? Another dumb question, intentionally dumb. It's another intentional stupid question. But I get to do stupid questions because I am the HTRP, right? Who do you suppose the Lord God Almighty would select to bring the body and the blood to Abraham? Who would he pick for that? He would only pick himself. You're absolutely right. It's too important and it's also critically important that he himself comes to that. Again, if he will come to the 
the sacrifice of Isaac, which is a picture of his own crucifixion, if he would come to Hagar, who says he's the God that he sees, would he, go, would, he, would he come to Abraham to argue over Sodom and Gomorrah? Would he come to Sarah and Abraham and say, your heir, Genesis 15, is now coming true? If he would come personally for all of that, would he come personally to bring the bread and the wine? Does he bring his own body and his own blood? Does he do that? Absolutely. It's a fundamental doctrine of Scripture that he brings his body and his blood. There's there's implications of that. It's far-reaching. Did he bring some nondescript, mere human being? Is that your answer, really? Is that what you want to to fight for? Do you suppose Melchizedek arbitrarily brought the bread and wine, the first mention of bread and wine in Scripture? What else then? If if it's arbitrary and it's random, then what else is capricious in the Holy Word of God? Because if you allow capriciousness, if you allow arbitrary, if if you diminish this, what else gets diminished? Randomness is precluded. It's expunged by omniscience, infinity, and timelessness, which is really the same thing said three times. The Abrahamic blessing and covenant is an unconditional, everlasting. The sign of it is what? Circumcision. What's the sign? What does circumcision mean? Circumcision is the Christ shedding his blood. That is what he says to his disciples. This is my blood shed for you. It's Christ crucified. Would he entrust the shedding of his blood Christ, the crucifixion doctrine, would he do it with a sinful fallen man? No, he would do it himself. It would be delivered by Christ himself. It's him with the bread and wine, exactly the same as he did at Matthew 26, 26 through 27, Mark 14, 22 through 27, Luke 22, 14 through 23, and John 13, 21 through 27, which tells you that Satan is in both of these. John 13, 21 through 27 reveals that, that Satan also was present at the what most people call the Last Supper. Satan was there. And you've got to keep that element to the forefront, in my opinion, because we need to ask why Satan is there. Why would Satan go to the Last Supper? In my opinion, humble as it might be, I rarely rarely, uh, refer to the Lord's Supper as the Last Supper, or even the Lord's Supper, for that matter. I don't like to call him either of that because I have this position. So I kind of hide from it. Now you know why. Again, it's my opinion. I think it's far more accurate to label the, the, what we would call normally the Last Supper. I, I say it's not the Last Supper. It's the Second Supper. Mm-hmm. are the second bread and wine. Because there's only two of them. The first bread of wine, and Satan also attended that. Got to bludgeon that in, right? That would be Genesis. That would be Melchizedek. Does Satan remember that? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, he knows where the Abrahamic covenant began. He understands the salvific principle. He knows all the doctrines. He hates them, but he knows them. He can't defeat them, but he tries. He and he still wants the people. Absolutely right. It's all about how many people can he destroy. Ah, so, if I am correct, dramatic pause. Okay, There are two suppers 
Each one, both of them, divulged the shed blood of Christ, Christ Jesus. Abraham with the dividing of the animals in the first supper. The second supper, the Passover supper, if you want to call it that, I'll concede it to you, but it's the second supper. I want you to say the second supper because I want you to go back to Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. Okay? Satan shows up twice. What's he doing? Everyone wants to know, why did he pick the second supper to enter Judas? They always think it's because of what Judas is going to do. And there's that component. I won't take that away. But Satan is going to attend this second supper because he attended the first supper. He's going to be there. He understood the significance of the first one, so he would obviously understand the significance of the second one. So, what have you concluded about the first supper? Did Melchizedek give the sop to Satan? Because if Satan is there, remember, Melchizedek brings bread and wine. What's he do with the bread and wine? He divides the bread. Who does he give the peace, the, the, the sop of honor to? Does he give it to Abraham? Or does he give it to Satan? The second time he gave it to who? Satan. Satan was inside of Judas. So I'm trying to point out, to rephrase the question, how much of the first supper was repeated in the second supper? Keep in mind, Christ is the great rememberer. Does he remember what he did? Has he got that worked out? Do I have to go back to Aleph, Tav, and Infinity and Omniscience? Can you recognize that you're dealing with a being here that is incomprehensible? And he doesn't just do things that you would do or I would do. He's not like us at all in the sense that his mind is an infinite, omniscient mind. And he's an incredible power. He is the creator of all things. Uh, He's the possessor of heavens and earth. Obviously, there are two advents of Christ. What I mean by that, he comes twice, right? And I got two suppers. And I got two birds. And I got bread and wine. You know, those are probably just incidental, you know, they're just, uh, no, stop, please stop. You've got a big ball, hundred and you got 650 feet of gill net monofilament line in a big ball, and you've got to figure it out. That's what he wants. Ask why. Why did he come to each one of us and say, here's a ball, a monofilament line, all tangled up. There might be 20 nets here, all of them 650 feet long. Untangle them. I'll see you later. Why does he do that? Because it proves something. It's amazing what it proves. I already told you. Again, two advents of Christ. He came as the sacrifice, the prophet, the suffering servant. The second advent, he comes as Messiah King, the King of the world, the Ancient of Days, the Judge of all mankind and all angels. It makes sense to me that he would have two suppers. He would have two witnesses. He would have two stone tablets. He would have free will and judgment. He would have wave-particle duality. He would have two components of life, the body and the soul. He would have two goats of Yom Kippur. He would have two realities. He would have two gates. He would have two testaments, two trees, as Israel and the church the wife and the bride, the heavens and the earth, the two lights, the greater and the lesser, Jew and Gentile, Judah and Israel, good and evil, truth and lies, two suppers, two birds, male, female, father, mother, Adam, Eve, and of course the one that's the greatest of all of those is the God-man. 
Okay? Okay, so so far we've entangled one loose piece of one ball of 20 nets. Sort of, maybe not really. It's a fake untangled. Haven't really done it. We really, we got, we got about six inches of one piece of monofilament line. We found something. Yeah, that much. That's exactly right. And 153 fish is in there because it testifies of the same thing. It's the 153. It's the 17.9, right? Okay. And that gets us into the fine structure constant again and, and pi. You know, why is it that every single circle, the diameter and the, and the circumference have this incredible relationship? Oh, and where am I? So what are we going to do next? We're pretty close to done. All things are in motion. We know that, right? That's B-O-G-L-I-E, Broglie, de Broglie. He figured out that all matter is in motion. Uh, And so, all things are in motion, especially so at the quantum level. Nothing is still. Nothing is at rest. There is nothing that is still. Not one thing. The obvious question is, why is everything in motion? How did everything come to be in motion? And of course, and this of course will place us into the realm once again of gravitational force and electromagnetic force and strong nuclear force and weak nuclear force. Yay, said no one. Why are there these forces? See, it's in the ball. It's in the ball of fishing nets. Why are these, where, why are there these forces? And obviously, these forces are somebody. It's him. He did it. No one has ever been able to answer the question that de Broglie figured out. And that was, everything's in motion. Why? No one's been able to ever answer that. No scientific analysis has ever been able to answer that question. Why are these forces and why is there this motion? The only one who has ever answered this question is a theologian philosopher. And he always does the same thing. He quotes Matthew 6, 9. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And there's your Father's Day sermon. He put it all in motion. His voice, his words spoke everything into motion. Why did he do it? Okay, see you on July the 10th.